our political system is to a great extent, uh, you know, a battleground, which sometimes involves cooperation coalitions like battles do, right? There's allies and there's uh, collaboration, cooperation in wartime, but it's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a battleground where uh, organized groups that have organized around some kind of specific interest or set of interests that range from totally material, you know, just getting your slice of the pie to completely value-based or ideological, like making the thing that you think is right or wrong uh, into law. That what our, what a democratic political system is, is it's a struggle among interest groups. <clears throat> and that all interest groups have, uh, you know, relative amount of resources that they can make use of to advance their cause. Uh, and part of what interest groups do is they uh, try to maximize their resources and they try to make the most effective and efficient use of them. And maybe one of the things, as I think about it, even as I just said that, one of the things that uh, is true though, in the real world, that's the sort of, we can describe like interest groups are trying to maximize and efficiently use their resources in order to get policy that uh, um, meets the goals of their interests that got them to organize in the first place. In the, that's, you know, that's, a, that's exactly what they're doing, but different groups actually use their resources better than others. Uh, so not all groups, I, I'm not an economist who you know, is gonna assume that all groups are using their available resources, their maximal uh, ability. Uh, some groups, the people who are running it, aren't as good as other groups. And, uh, the, and, and of course, what's definitely true is that some, some groups, depending on what their interest is, have more readily available resources of one kind or another. But there's no, I hope you also take out of this, that there's no one group that, or one type of group that has uh, like the highest level of all resources. Uh, and in fact, it's usually there's trade-offs. The biggest resources are time, uh, time and energy, membership size, so voters, and then money. And typically when you have a lot of one of those, you don't have very much of the other ones. And so you have to make, uh, sort of make use with that. And so groups that have a lot of money uh, tend not to have as many, much membership. Uh, and groups that have a lot of money though do tend to be more efficient than groups because they're one, they're smaller and two, they're usually focused on financial outcomes. So their policy concerns are directly tied to a pretty straightforward, simple thing. Like we want less regulation and more tax breaks and more subsidies and, and a, a, a regulatory environment that is least expensive uh, and most beneficial. So, uh, but different groups, like the, depending on who the leadership is, they do a better or worse job of uh, um, making use of their resources. Sometimes people make bad decisions and they put too much effort into maximizing the, their, their supply of resources and not in using them efficiently, or they spend a lot of resources, uh, for example, raising money, a lot of money raising money uh, or a lot of time and energy raising money when they could have used that time and energy to actually do something that uh, does a better thing than money. You know, like if you, if you spend a lot of time and energy organizing people to uh, uh, go on letter writing campaigns and go to protests and go testify before uh, legislative committees um, and get involved in uh, election campaigns to get favorable candidates elected, if you spend a ton of time and energy doing that, you could end up with a lot more influence than if you spend a lot of time raising money and then spending that money on lobbying efforts or political uh, contributions. 
some groups are better off using financial resources and some groups are better off using time uh, and energy and membership size. But real, in the real world, uh, the struggle abstractly you know, uh, would occur among fully rational, fully efficient, fully effective groups maximizing their haul of resources and utilizing them most effectively. But in reality, some groups are better than others. And one of the things that happens, and this was, the, this was part of this week, uh, the wrap up of like giving you an overview of how things really look. Um, part of it is uh, the people, the specific individual people who are involved in certain kinds of groups. And like, if you have uh, a, like if you represent a large block of voters in a state um, and your leadership is just not very politically savvy uh, and you're the people uh, who, who are running that organization who essentially decided to dedicate their lives to this organization instead of to getting an outside job. Like they're the ones who are like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work full time for this organization. Um, uh, let's say it's like uh, the League of Conservation Voters, in, which is a, which is an interest group in Oregon that is very uh, prominent. Like I'm going to debt. The environment is so important and Oregon's natural resources and, and natural environment are so important. I'm going to take a leadership position. I'm going to work for this. I'm going to make less money than I would make if I were working in the private sector. Maybe I'm a lawyer and I can make a lot of money in the private sector, but I'm going to work for this. Uh, this NGO and uh, you may not necessarily be politically savvy just because you're politically committed uh, and people who have the highest level of political abilities might say, well, you know what, um, I'm going to go to work as a hired gun running campaigns for candidates for uh, governor and secretary of state, state legislature and, and city council, because I know what I'm doing. I'm good and I can make a lot of money. And so uh, the talent, the best talent doesn't always go into interest groups. And then that's one of the things about maximizing financial return too, is that if you, if you are, a, a, uh, you have a lot of financial resources, you can then hire the best talent. You know, unfortunately, like the League of Conservation Voters is not capable of buying the best talent. Now, that doesn't mean that if you can't pay top salaries that you're automatic, they don't want to equate like lower salaries with lower quality people because some people will in fact are super talented and they're living up to their values by saying, well, I'm, you know, I could make a ton of money in the private sector, but I'm going to put my work where my values are, not where, uh, and my values being, you know, uh, um, non-material values. So different individuals also, you know, I, I, back in week one, and I always, I always repeat this and emphasize it because I do think that when people hear the term interests, they almost always default back to the idea that interests are material interests and that interests are self-interests only. But, uh, our interests are whatever we think is important for us in the world um, to manifest. And it could be making a lot of money. It could be caring for your family. It could be quality time. It could be travel. It could be a moral thing like protecting the unborn or making sure that women have an expensive set of uh, reproductive rights, whatever it happens to be, there are definitely people who are kick-ass at politics who say, well, living up to my values means that I'm gonna take less salary to do something that I think is good for the world. Uh, and so there are plenty of badasses in, the, in working for bad salaries. Um, and it, that's true in teaching too. Like there are plenty of K through 12 teachers who are people who could make more money, but they're just like, they're, it's their calling. Um, but this, the distribution of talent and commitment and skill isn't even across interest groups. And it, and it fluctuates. You know, so it's like the League of Conservation Voters has somebody who's the executive director who's not particularly politically savvy, but is totally dedicated to the cause uh, and isn't really doing a very good job. Then part of the internal struggle in that organization, um, the membership and other people who are in uh, 
leadership positions is to get rid of that person or the people who are not effectively working and to replace them. And so there's, there's internal politics as well. Um, the NRA recently actually had, and they're still kind of undergoing it, but had, a, had an internal power struggle that centered around corruption, uh, which does sometimes happen. It happens in union leadership all the time. Uh, unions are very effective, powerful interest groups, but there's often corruption scandals because people who have access to all those resources that the giant unions, which have a lot of members and they have dues, so they actually have pretty good financial resources, corruption is very tempting at that level. And so uh, you, those people, so part of the internal struggle is to keep, keep uh, a leadership of your group that actually is savvy, dedicated, skillful, and honest. Uh, and, and those traits are not always distributed evenly uh, throughout, throughout the system. So we, what we don't get is we don't necessarily get as an outcome in our political system, a, a fully rational like, okay, all these groups, their resources are distributed, however they're distributed based on what they represent. So if you represent an interest uh, that millions of people share, you have more votes. If you represent an interest that a key sector of the economy, like the banking industry represents, then you have, uh, then you have essentially automatic political capital. Um, those resources, potential resources, are not distributed evenly across the playing field. And they're not necessarily uh, uh, distributed equally in terms of talent and skill and dedication and honesty. And so the outcomes are not always what you might expect if you punched at this stuff all into a computer. Um, politics is still like a, 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 you know, I won't say dirty, but it's a, it's a grubby human endeavor where outcomes are kind of hard to, hard to predict. Um, but we can see who usually wins. And one of the things is that the groups that usually win are the ones that have uh, a lot of unity, a lot of voter uh, support, uh, those two things tie together, a lot of financial resources, uh, and that have really important connections in the community. And in American political society, the uh, biggest connection you can have in a community for political power is if you're key to the economy. Public elected officials will, um, they'll do the bidding of, of major employers in their state or their district without even being asked because yeah. they know that their, that their political survival depends on the state of the economy. They know that whatever issues are important to voters in their district, that the economy is always important. And so without even being asked, uh, you know, city council members in Seattle um, they don't need a phone call from Amazon's lobbyist in order to be thinking about Amazon. Now, it doesn't mean Amazon's always going to win, but uh, in fact, you know, like you, it's, it's kind of like rich people don't have to pay for stuff a lot of times. Like the more money you have, the less you have to pay for stuff. The more economic clout you have, the less you actually have to directly ask elected officials. And that's a weird resource too. And that's one of the reasons why, I, sh I shouldn't say weird, that's a resource. That's in a way that's political capital. Uh, elected officials and hope elected hopefuls are going to pay attention to your interest, not because you've influenced them, but because uh, they believe that your interests align with their interests. But elected officials themselves, they miscalculate policy all the time. They also miscalculate the political, uh, the political landscape. You know, just because you've been elected four or five times in a row doesn't mean you're necessarily always going to win re-election because you're clearly really good at it. Um, it may just be that you've always had pretty easy elections to run and you've gotten complacent in reading the political environment uh, and you help your major employer and people turn against you. And that happened in Seattle too, you know. So there were some insurgent candidates for city council that said, hey, fuck Amazon. We're gonna, like, we're, we're going to, uh, we're gonna come at them and we're gonna also like prioritize 
the homelessness problem, which is connected to Amazon's uh, economic dominance in, in, in the downtown core, or actually at, throughout, the, throughout the entire city, um, and the council, city council members who thought they were doing the right thing, uh, they, they didn't read the new political landscape as successfully as they could. So sometimes we can look at from the outside and say, God, but serving the economic interests of these big corporations is actually not good for your constituents. Uh, that, that you may be right and elected officials and their strategists might disagree with you and they might be wrong. And that's where it comes, comes back to, I think, the background condition of the American political culture, which is that um, we have a fundamentally pro-capitalist, uh, individualistic, uh, anti-authoritarian political culture, all of which you know, basically mean that by default, what corporations want in terms of policy is likely to be acceptable to the American people, regardless of what the consequences are. So like, you know, we can look at, we can look at 21st century capitalism and say, it's increasing the wealth disparity like, like it hasn't since the Gilded Age of the late 19th century. And it's, uh, it is uh, creating conditions for its own sort of like these, these, these deep recessions. And corporations don't really care. And they're, they're, they're not here to serve American workers. They're just there to serve their profits. And yet, the vast majority of Americans are fundamentally pro-capitalist. So policy has to be made within that broader context of what Americans will and won't find acceptable. And to a large extent, it means that the options that are real, the realistic options available to policymakers in terms of economic, economic policy is a small set of what's really available in theory, right? So you have all, here's the giant set of policies that you could make to alleviate suffering, to make sure that everybody has a decent standard of living, to make sure there's some kind of financial security, to make sure that wealth disparities don't get out of control so that actually the economic system becomes sort of uh, unstable. Um, and the set that's acceptable to the American people is this big. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes that set is not up to the task uh, of, of solving whatever problem is at hand. So that's, and that's the background condition. And every country has a political culture that essentially shrinks the set of theoretically available policies to a smaller set. Um, and it depends on what the policy area is. And, and the, in economic policy, because of our fundamentally individualistic, pro-capitalist, anti-government, you know, like people are suspicious of government. They think, they think corporations are more efficient than governments when in fact, governments can actually often be very efficient, especially because they don't have to make a profit for their uh, shareholders, so they don't have to actually generate so much revenue and cut costs so much. Um, but like, there you just like there's there's no nationalizing industries in our political culture, uh, even if that would be rational. Um, there's no government takeovers, even like you know, uh, even in a time of a pandemic. Imagine that Bernie Sanders had been president, and uh, he said, "I'm I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to essentially." Uh, dictate to corporations to what they have to make. We're going to pump out ventilators. We're going to pump out tests. Um, that level of invasion that a guy like Bernie Sanders would find like very natural, and that in fact might be what is required to be up to the task of handling a pandemic in a country of 350 million people who are highly mobile and who hate to be told what to do. Um, but like the, I, I think about the rebellion against such a thing. Even if, it's, even if it's like the most sensible policy, it just falls outside the boundaries. In the interest group struggle, uh, 
the, another one of the resources that groups have, and I, I guess I didn't probably make this point abundant enough uh, in the lectures, but another resource that groups have is how far from the mainstream or how close to the mainstream of uh, polit American political culture does that group's preferred policies fall? Um, so, you know, if you, uh, if you have a set of policies that would involve wholesale, uh, for example, uh, reform and restructuring of police departments, um, that falls farther from like what's mainstream. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's outside the uh, set of possible, but it falls farther from what's mainstream than, uh, you know, people whose proposals are to, for example, have civilian oversight boards. Um, if, you know, if, if you want to, uh, if you think it's a smart thing to move a lot of resources from the militarization of the police, from, from providing riot gear, from providing, you know, uh, like more SWAT teams than they need, to like hiring an army of mental health uh, experts and counselors to go out to domestic violence situations and uh, drug situations and situations of like, you know, basically where people are like active shooters who have mental problems. The, the idea of paying lots of mental health workers instead of paying police more and arming them more, unfortunately, and maybe this will change, and I think it may change, but like at this, at this moment in time, and certainly six months ago, that fell farther out of the mainstream. And so the groups pushing for that have a harder time in the interest group struggle. And, and that's another thing I think that I would want to get across in my wrap up of this type of this class is that every group not only has resources that they can make uh, use of, that they can maximize, that they can use efficiently or not, um, that every group also has a set, kind of a, a, a given set of opportunities and obstacles. Um, opportunities for, are, for example, when what they want actually aligns with uh, the dominant culture or what they want aligns with some new set of consciousness. One of the things that has always remained a mystery to me, a, a partial mystery, is how it is that um, the like basically regular occurrence of mass shootings has not provided uh, gun control advocates with more of an opportunity to shift the political landscape. And then the only reason why it's not a total mystery to me is that the NRA is so good. Like they operate at the highest level. I, I feel like the NRA uses the, even for the, even with the corruption, they use their resources so well. They have an abundance of membership size. They have unity. They have uh, like, they, they, they have enough financial resources that they can pay the best people. They don't donate a ton of money to campaigns. They use their money wisely. They don't have a shit ton of money compared to other groups, but they use their money extremely wisely. Um, and so the NRA always for me is like, oh yeah, you know, even facing what would to other groups be major obstacles. In other words, there's a, there is a regular occurrence of high profile current events that outrage people and make them call for policy changes and they can successfully play defense against that year in and year out. Uh, and I keep waiting, like I keep waiting uh, for them to, for it to stumble. And I thought for sure, I'm like, well, we're at least gonna get bump stock uh, um, regulation. And that was a thing that was, that was seemed likely for maybe five days and then it just disappeared. Um, so every group has obstacles and opportunities that the landscape of obstacles and opportunities does shift. It's very difficult to shift that on your own, to be like, okay, the obstacle that most people think that cops who shoot black people are just bad apples, uh, not that it's not systemic uh, racism. Um, that's an obstacle. Uh, that obstacle is potentially transforming and more and more Americans are actually saying, oh, I think that racial violence uh, among police is actually systemic and not just bad cops who, you know, of course there's gonna be bad apples in any, in any barrel. 
Um, so those are the kinds of things that can change the landscape. And then, of course, protests, uh, a, success, you know, a savvy media strategy, uh, prolonged um, messaging to uh, the American people, those can have an impact on the political environment as well. All of those things like could be and are having an impact on how interest groups are going to be uh, um, you know, prosecuting their activities in this overall struggle. So the, I guess to get back to what I started to the wrap up is that like, I hope that in this class, you've all learned to like, you know, to see democratic politics as fundamentally a struggle among competing interest groups with different levels of resources and efficiency uh, and different uh, landscapes of opportunities and obstacles. And then also seen and learned about the specific avenues that they use to try to pursue victory. Uh, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, and that the dynamics in each of those domains are quite different. Uh, and that, that I would say is like the biggest thing is, is that besides knowing that democratic politics is a struggle among interest groups with uh, uh, unequally distributed resources, but that there are really different dynamics at working through each of the three main avenues. Um, and then there's different, of course, different dynamics that are internal to each of these organizations. The smaller and more unified an organization is, the less there is an internal struggle. Um, the more an organization represents an interest that has connections with other people's interests, the more opportunities there are for collaboration and coalitions. Um, the more uh, a, a group's uh, interests relate to a singular uh, um, issue, like for example, tax cuts, the more opportunity there is to actually have common ground with and, and total unity with other groups who represent that same kind of thing. Um, so all of that, that's, uh, there's the box, I put the bow on it and now you can take that with you out into the world.